Thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave everything for us. Thank you that my scars, my sin, my shame has been buried in the depths of the deepest sea, has been removed from me as far as the east is from the west, that I have access to this power by which to live life through Jesus Christ, the one who not only died, but rose again from the grave. Thank you, Father, that he has robbed the grave. He has resurrected me. I would pray the same for everyone that's here this morning, Lord. You know each heart. And I pray that as we open the scripture this morning, that you would use it like you have promised, like a knife that can pierce the depths of our souls. So often we allow that scar tissue to build up and build a shield around us so that nothing can penetrate, so that no one can get in there and find out what's really going on. But you, you, Father, you know every heart, you know every thought. We're praying that the truth of your word would drive deeply into our hearts and minds this morning. If there is anyone here who does not know Christ as their Savior, that their eyes would be opened to the truth, that you would draw them to Christ this morning and know his great love. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, folks. You can have a seat. Glad to have you here this morning. Looking forward to opening God's Word together here today on Easter Sunday as we gather. As I was thinking about what I wanted to share with you this morning, I was thinking about the fact that on some level, most people want things to make sense. Let me give you an example. We may not always like all of the traffic laws in our state, but we do understand why they're there and how they work, right? They make it possible for us to have the ability to be on the road with literally thousands of other people and to do it rather safely. We understand that there are speed limits because if we go too fast, and we lose control of our vehicles and we could have an accident. We understand that there are yellow lines in the middle of the road for a reason. I don't know about you, but once in a while I approach someone and, and they're on my side of the yellow line. But we know they're there for a reason. If we stay on our separate sides, we avoid head-on collisions. Logic is the interrelation of facts which lead to a predictable conclusion. When you put the facts together, this is what happens. We see them and we say, yep, that makes sense. This is what I'm going to do. But the key to that whole system, the key to the whole system of logic, is that we have all the facts, right? If we're missing some of the facts, then this whole process kind of breaks down. Let me give you an example. I don't know why I'm stuck on accidents and traffic today, but let me give you an example. 99.9% of all people involved in motor vehicle accidents 
have consumed carrots within 90 days of their accident. Okay, those more. 93% of all juvenile offenders come from homes where carrots are served. And of all of those born before 1850 who have eaten carrots, there is a 100% mortality rate. Now, when we look at the facts, we conclude what? Eating carrots is extremely hazardous to your health. Now, you know, of course, that's ridiculous. What's the problem with my little hypothesis? We're missing some of the facts, right? If you don't have all the facts, you cannot come to the right conclusion. So what does that have to do with Easter? Well... We can put aside all the bunnies and the baskets and the eggs and the brunches and the hams that we're all going to consume in a few hours and think about a few facts from the Bible. Fact. We have all done things that are wrong. Fact. All of those things have been done against God, the creator of heaven and earth. Fact. The punishment for our sin is death and eternity in hell. Fact. There is nothing that we can do about that in our own strength. Now what conclusion does that lead us to? Logically, with those facts, we would say... What is God going to do? God is going to, what? Punish us. Because we've sinned. Because we've broken his law. Because we have offended him. Because we have acted contrary to his standards. And there's nothing that we can do to put ourselves back into his goodness. How do we know that? Well, we know that because that's what we would do right? If you were God and you said, these are my laws, don't break them. And literally every single person you created broke those laws, what would you do? You would punish those people. Because that makes sense to us. But what do we celebrate on Easter? But God sent an unexpected Savior. Why? Why would he do that? Surely he did not have to do that. That would be illogical. That doesn't make sense based on the facts that we have. But there is one more fact that we need to uncover. And we're going to find that fact and find the whole truth, the whole story of what God has done and is doing in Isaiah chapter 53. So if you have your Bible this morning, open it to Isaiah 53. It's right about in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the 
the verses will be on the screen so that you can follow along as I read them to you. We're going to see as we read Isaiah 53 that actually nothing happened as we would expect when we look at the situation. Isaiah was a prophet who ministered the word of God to the people of Israel about 700 years before Christ was born. So if you can turn the little chronology dial in your head, this is almost 3,000 years ago that Isaiah wrote these verses. We're going to start in verse number 1. We'll make our way down through this passage here over the next few minutes. Verse 1 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. What I want you to notice here this morning, first of all, is that there was an unrecognized Messiah. An unrecognized Messiah. So let me back up and give you a little context. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that the book of Genesis is the first book. If you don't, that's okay. I'll lay it out for you. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. In chapter 2, he creates man and woman and he puts them in the middle of the garden. He says, you can have it all. It's all for you except for this one tree. Don't eat anything of it. And of course, what did they do? They ate from it. They sinned. They broke God's law. And they broke fellowship with him. And they, and they, as a result, were cast out of the garden and away from the presence of God. But in Genesis chapter 3, God says this. I'm going to send you a redeemer. I'm going to send you a savior. The word really is Messiah, the sent one. I'm going to send you someone who is going to fix this, who is going to provide a way so that you can be back in my family, be back in my graces, be back and enjoy the goodness of what I have for you. That was the promise. He would provide a way of freedom and provide a way of forgiveness. And all through the Old Testament, if you read from Genesis all the way to Malachi, you will read that God is promising this. He is promising to rescue his people. He even established this whole system of worship and sacrifice. And everything in that system, everything that they were called to do, pointed toward this one who was going to come and provide forgiveness and provide freedom. But there was a problem. Israel ran out of patience with God. When God didn't immediately send the Savior, when he didn't immediately rescue them, they began to wonder, where is the Messiah? Where is this promise of freedom? Where is the forgiveness? Why do we have to keep doing this? Why do we keep falling into bondage? Why do we keep being defeated? Why do we keep being put back into slavery? 
God was not rescuing them in the time or the fashion that they had hoped for. And they eventually became very demanding of God. We see that all through the Old Testament. But then, the Father sent the Son. The Father sent the Messiah. But the problem was, when he came, they didn't recognize him. Why didn't they recognize him? Well, he didn't come the way they expected him to. Isaiah, predicting the coming of this Messiah 700 years before he was born, said there was no form or majesty that we should look for for him. Now, I know that when we read that, we think, well, you know, what does that mean? No form or majesty. Let me break it down for you really simply. It literally means he wasn't very handsome. Now, I know when you think about Jesus, you think about a picture painted by a Dutch master about 400 years ago, and Jesus has long, flowing, light brown hair, kind of wavy, with a nice beard and high cheekbones and blue eyes. But the scripture says that when Christ was born, he was not handsome. He was not impressive. There was nothing that made him stand out. He didn't have the right family connections. He wasn't born in a palace. Of course, you know that he was born where? A stable, a barn. We've even, we've even romanticized the word manger. It was a feed trough. I've been in a few barns. The feed troughs are not glamorous. There was nothing about Jesus that was attractive. In fact, what does Isaiah say? We read it a moment ago. It says he was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. When Jesus lived his life on this earth, his life consisted of rejection and ridicule and pain and suffering. Jesus Christ was the Messiah. But he was unrecognized. Look at verse 4. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I want you to notice secondly here that there was undeserved suffering. Despite all of that, despite his rejection, despite the fact that he was unrecognized, that he was unacknowledged, he suffered in our place. Terrible things were done to him. What does Isaiah say in that passage? He says, he bore our grief. Literally, he took our sickness. He took our sickness. I don't always like to equate sin with sickness because I think sometimes that takes away our responsibility a little bit. We think about sickness as something that happens to us that we don't deserve Sin, of course, we commit willingly. 
But there is a sickness to sin, isn't there? You know this if you've ever been at a place in your life where there was an unhealthy pattern going on that you felt like you couldn't stop. You kept falling into the same thing over and over again. Something that you wrestled with, maybe a struggle, a particular struggle, a habitual thing, an addiction or whatever it is. And you know that you keep going to the same place over and over. It certainly feels like a sickness, doesn't it? He took our sickness. Isaiah says he he carried our sorrows. Literally, our pain. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was chastised. But he didn't deserve it. It was all for his, it was all for our sin, rather. It was all of our punishment that he was enduring. But in the face of that unbelievable sacrifice, in light of that, that, that mind-blowing selflessness, how do we look at life? How do we choose to look at life? Well, Isaiah makes a statement here 2,700 years ago that is actually a perfect description of us today in 2022. He says, we have turned every one of us to his own way. We have our own idea of how life ought to be lived, don't we? Nod your head if you have any idea what I'm talking about. You know what you want. You know what you want to do. You know the results of what you want to see happen in your life from what you do. We want to live life our own way. We don't want people telling us what to do. We want to take care of ourselves. We want to make our own destiny. and Live life in a way that makes sense to us. Jesus suffered for us. And it was undeserved. And we have just turned and gone our own way. Look at verse 7. Isaiah continues. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His dignity was taken away. We're not going to do this this morning, but we could turn to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And we could read there what happened after Christ was arrested and taken to the judgment hall. And if we were to read those passages, we would see that that he was stripped of his clothes. And then he was whipped, and he was beaten with rods. Someone went out and took a couple of branches from a thorn bush and wove them into a circle and jammed it down onto his head like a crown. 
And they put a purple robe on him and mocked him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they blindfolded him and they took rods and they beat him and then they said, Who is it, O wise one? Who is it that hit you? Tell us if you know everything. He was humiliated. And yet when Pilate asked him, what his response was to the accusations that were made to him, do you know what he said? Nothing. There was undefended innocence. As evidence of his humility, he took all of this abuse, he took all of this pain, he took all of this mistreatment, and he didn't even defend himself. I don't know about you, but if somebody accuses me of something I didn't do, I'm generally fairly quick to defend myself. Let me set you straight. But not Jesus. He willingly submitted himself to this. He willingly allowed himself to be abused for things that he hadn't even done. And Isaiah says for 2,000 years now, he predicted it, But now, 2,000 years later, his sacrifice and even his existence has been swept under the rug by his own people. That's what it means there when he says, of his own generation, his own people. The Israelites themselves, the Jewish nation, has largely ignored Jesus and swept it all away and discredited him. It says here he was at his grave with a rich man in his death. What did that mean? Well, if you turn to the book of John, you would see there that after Jesus died, a man named Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, came and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took Jesus' body and he prepared it for burial and he put him in his own tomb, in in Joseph's own tomb. We picture that hole in the mountainside, that hole in the stone with the huge stone that we're told that was rolled in front of it. That was a rich man's grave. A pauper would not be buried that way. But in fulfillment of this prophecy that Isaiah made so long before, even though he was identified and marked and punished as a criminal, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. He certainly could have protested. He certainly could have defended himself and his innocence, but he did not. Look at verse 10. Yet, that's a very important word, my friends, yet. You could substitute the word but. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus did not defend his innocence because there was God's unwavering will. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Now I was looking at that phrase and I was digging into it a little bit. And I, and I found out that literally what Isaiah is saying is this. It was the delight 
of the Lord to crush him. Not only was it the plan of God for Jesus to be abused, to be mistreated, to be killed, to be crucified, it was not only his will, it was his delight. The Father wanted this to happen. All of this, the unrecognized Messiah, the undeserved suffering, the undefended innocence, it was all part of God's plan. It was his will, it was his purpose that Christ do all of this for us. When he was praying just before he went to the cross, Jesus said this in John 17, he said, I have glorified you, that is the Father, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Isaiah says, the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. This was God's plan, and God was pleased with this plan. Let's read verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the enemy, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me tell you what that means. The father saw the anguish of Jesus' soul and was satisfied. Remember the facts that we talked about a few minutes ago? The facts the Bible gives us? The facts that we have all done things that are wrong? The fact that those are against the standard of righteousness and holiness of God, and that there's nothing that we can do about it, God's justice must be satisfied. That sin must be paid for. And it was. Jesus paid the price. The Father saw the anguish of his soul, and he was satisfied. Sin was paid for so that, Isaiah says, many could be made righteous. Jesus was willing to be rejected and beaten and abused so that the Father would be pleased by it because it meant that millions of people would be rescued from eternity in hell. 1 John 2, 2 says, Jesus Christ is the propitiation, the payment, the satisfying of God's justice for our sin. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. God is satisfied and we are justified. God's righteousness is fulfilled and we are saved. Why? It doesn't make sense it's not logical that God would do this, that he would suffer. Friends, you need to know that God provided a Savior for you. He provided a Savior for you, an unexpected one, an unrecognized one, an undeserved one. But why? Why does he do this? 
Well, this is the one missing fact that we must have to bring this all together. The missing fact is that God loves you. And he loves me. And he loves this world. And in love, he offers you this gift. His grace. He offers you a way. A way to be forgiven. A way to be saved. Without that one fact, none of this makes sense. But with this one thing... We now understand. We now come to realize why God would do this because of his love. A way to be forgiven and a way to be saved. Not only did Jesus Christ die, not only did he bear your sin and your punishment and die, but three days later he rose again. And that's what we celebrate. He rose again. Why does that matter? It matters for this reason, my friends. When Christ rose from the grave, he demonstrated his power over death. There's been all kinds of crazy nut jobs in the history of human civilization that claimed that they were the Messiah, that claimed that they were the one who had set everything right. But every single one of them has died and gone into the grave and stayed there, but not Jesus. He died and rose again to demonstrate that everything that he said was true. To demonstrate that he had the power to save us from death and eternity in hell. But listen, the Savior who was rejected, who suffered terribly and undeservedly for you, he is the only way. And many people hear that and they think that how how unfair, how narrow, how cruel. And it may seem that way to you. But this is God's world. He created it. He created you. He gave you life. These are his standards that we have violated. And the reality is that if he treated us fairly, we would all spend eternity in hell. That's what's fair. But in his love, he provides a way. And that's what we celebrate at Easter. Through Jesus. And as the band plays this morning, I want to invite you to just quietly consider what Jesus Christ has done for you. His death on your behalf, his burial, and his resurrection to provide you life was all done because of his great love. Friends, because of God's great love for you, he made a way. Thank you, God, for not treating me fairly. Thank you, God, for giving me a place in your family. Have you trusted Christ? If you're here this morning and you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, can I just ask you this? What is your plan? If you were to die tonight and stand before Christ, what would you say? Would you just presume, would you just hope that what you've done or what you haven't done is enough? 
You would have to rest on your life. But the message of the cross, the message of Easter and the resurrection is that Christ died for you. He died your death so that you could be raised to life. And if that's the place you're in this morning or you don't know what place you're in, I want to challenge you to look into your heart this morning. You can know because Christ made a way. He died your death so that you could have life. Simply know this, even if this doesn't make sense, if it doesn't fit your logic, simply know this, that the God who loves you has done for you what you could never do for yourself. And if you are a Christ follower here this morning, you need to humble yourself before this great God worship and thank him for all he has done for you. And by the way, don't just do it on Easter. Do it every day. He loves you and gave everything for you. Father, thank you for these opportunities that we have to pause from our lives and to focus our attention on you. I pray that we would be humbled this morning and worship the risen Christ. He is alive. We are so grateful for his sacrifice in our stead. Once again, I pray for those here this morning, Father, who do not have that assurance, who do not have that gift of salvation, for they have never trusted Christ. Father, please draw them to Christ this morning. Open their eyes to these truths that you who love us have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. As we go out from here, Father, may we not quickly forget what we have heard. May we not quickly set aside what we've been reminded of. May today not become just like every other day, but it might be a day that we worship and glorify you for your great sacrifice. Thank you, Father, for the risen Christ. Thank you for his power that is available to us to live life in a way that's honoring to you. I pray that you will mobilize us as a church today as we filter out into our homes and our communities and our neighborhoods. I pray that we would reflect your love to those who are around us, that many might know of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for coming today, folks. I hope you have a great week.